You're listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at harvestoakville.ca. Well, I want to start by saying two things. The first one, it's wonderful to be back with you. The second is, I'm so glad it didn't snow. That would have been a bummer. I do want to consider with you this evening three of the most important words ever written. These words are the hope of the universe. These words have the power to radically change you and everything about you. These three words every human being who has ever taken a breath desperately needs, whether they know it or not. These three words bring light and life to you. You just can't live without these three words. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to the little book of Jonah. Curious, weird little book. We call it a prophet, but there's almost no prophecy in Jonah. You know, Jonah, the weird story of this running prophet and this fish and vomit that follows. Weird story. And you sort of have to ask yourself, why are these 48 verses, 48 verses total in Jonah, in the Bible? Well, I think that in a way that is almost mysterious, God uses this narrative to give us all of the major elements of a biblical worldview in a podcast. Really, everything is there. It's, it's, it's amazing. I love the economy of this story at the power of what it contains. You're presented to Jonah with a God of awesome glory. We're going we're gonna to see that. You're presented in Jonah a world that is terribly broken by sin. You're presented in Jonah the reality that we were created for something vastly bigger than ourselves. You're presented in Jonah the stunning reality of forgiving, restoring grace. It's all there in the midst of this little story. I love Jonah. Jonah is my friend. Jonah gets me up in the morning. I love this book. Let me just read the first three verses to set up our walk through Jonah. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out again against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. God calls Jonah to a very hard thing. Don't be too hard on Jonah. What he was called to was difficult. I don't think there's anybody in this room that would be interested in this job description. This was a country boy who was called to a vast big city. Nineveh was one of the biggest cities of its day. A horrifically evil city. To preach a message that nobody wants to hear. A message of judgment. Now there's a job description to get excited about. 
And don't separate yourself from Jonah. What would you have thought? What would you have done if God had given that call to you? Wouldn't you have said, no, no, please not me? What are you doing right now with the hard things that God is calling you to do? Don't be too hard on Jonah. If you're hard on Jonah, if you separate yourself from Jonah, you will not benefit from, the, from this message of this book. Jonah gets in a boat to go to Tarshish. If you would, could put yourself in the knowledge of geography of people of that day, it was the end of the earth for him. He was going as far as human beings thought they could go to get away from the Lord. And his intention, check this out, was to flee from God's presence. Now you know if any human being is able to convince themselves that they can flee from God's presence, they are in the midst of spiritual insanity. Because there is no location, there is no situation in the universe that isn't inhabited by the presence and grandeur of the Lord. I think that that insanity lives in ways in all of us. Because running from God is seldom a matter of location. You can run from God and never move from the location that you're in. Anytime you take life in your own hands, anytime you do things that are against God's will, anytime you resist God's call, where you live, you are running from God. If you're a husband... And you're telling yourself you can be nasty to your wife and it will be okay. You are in the midst of spiritual insanity. If you're a wife and in your selfishness and bitterness, you can pick, 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 being critical to this man, beating him down day after day. You are in the midst of spiritual insanity. Where do you think this is going to go? If you're a parent and you celebrate grace on Sunday, but you don't give that grace to your children, you are in the midst of spiritual insanity. Where do you think that's going to go? If you're looking at websites you have no business looking at, polluting your mind, and you're able to tell yourself somehow, some way that won't hurt you, somehow, some way that will be okay, you're in the midst of spiritual insanity. Sin makes us all insane in some way. There really is a bit of Jonah in everybody in this room. Now, I want to make a confession to you. If I had been in charge, the book of Jonah would only have been thir three verses. You run from me, you're done. I have no want of prophets. I got plenty of prophets. I don't need to deal with a runner. You're done. D-O-N-E, done. I am the Lord. <laughs> and that's what's stunning about this. If anyone would have the right to do that, 
The holy Lord of the universe could say, I created you for my purpose. I called you for my glory. You have no right to run from me. You're done. There would be no unrighteousness in that. But isn't it wonderful that God is not just a God of justice, He's a God of grace. And immediately you are hit with three of the most important words you could ever read. Look at verse 4. But the Lord. Phrases like this are all over Scripture. But the Lord. It's the glory of divine interruption. Listen, God will interrupt your life because He's a God of glorious grace. He will interrupt your story. He will mess with your plans because He's a God of unrelenting, zealous, forgiving, restorative grace. But the Lord, we were lost. But the Lord, we were separated from God. But the Lord, we were natural rebels. But the Lord, we had no hope. But the Lord, we were facing eternal damnation. But the Lord, but the Lord, but the Lord, but the Lord, but the Lord. May these words never lose their glory for you. You're in this room. Because of those words. You've opened your Bible and you want to hear from it. Because of those words. Every good thing that lives in your heart is because of those words. Every good blessing that exists in your life is because of those words. I love these words. Go home. Get a 3 by 5 card. Write those words on the three by five card, tape it to the mirror you look at any morning, every morning and arise every day with hope. But the Lord. Glory in divine interruption. Don't get mad when God interrupts your life. He's not cursing you. He's not judging you. He's not condemning you. He's bathing you with grace. He's calling you back. You know why he does that? You know why he has to interrupt us? Because we still have fickle hearts that wander away, that want what we should want, that take control over what we should not take control of, that do what we should not do. And as long as sin lives inside of us, there's danger that lives inside of us. Listen, no one swindles you more than you do. No one's more of a danger to you than you are. Own it. That's why these words are so precious. Because I need someone more powerful than me, someone more righteous than me, someone more loving than me that will grab me again and say, no, 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 I will not let you go there. I will mess with your existence. I will bring trouble in your life if that's what's necessary. But I will draw you to myself. That's grace. Am I excited about this? You can feel my passion right down to my toes. I don't have words to express what these three words capture in their glory. And we will stand before the throne someday and we will sing, but the Lord, but the Lord, but the Lord, and five million years into eternity, those words will still excite us. Welcome to your existence as God's child. Well, Jonah's now in the boat. He doesn't know 
God's got plans for this boy. Mm-hmm. And he's sleeping in the bottom of the boat, and God sends a storm. I'm going to say this more than once. God is sovereign. He's sovereign over his world. He can marshal anything he wants to do what he wants in our lives. God has the hugest toolbox ever because he controls everything. I want to give you this principle. There's an important relationship between the sovereignty of God and the reliability of his promises. Hear this principle. Take it home and meditate on it. The promises of God are only as reliable as the extent of his sovereignty because you can only guarantee the delivery of promises in situations over which you have control. Does that make sense? And so why this is important is we're realizing as you go through Jonah, there's nothing that God doesn't have control over. And so all of his promises for us, all of his plans for us are reliable because every place where those promises have to come true and those plans have to eventuate, all those places are under his absolute control. Isn't that beautiful? You can't, you can't get excited about the promises of God without celebrating the sovereignty of God. Don't wish you had control. You just mess things up. And, and know how little your control is. I can't even control my car keys. The promises of God are only faithful and reliable as the extent of His sovereignty. That's why it's glorious that He can... He needs a storm, he can send a storm because he controls it all. Everything is under, lives under his will. Well, through casting lots, the, the guys on the boat connect to the fact that Jonah may be the reason for this storm. And they approach Jonah, and they say this. This is verse 8. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from, and what is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, Pay very careful attention to what I'm about to read. I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven. What is strange about what Jonah's just said? Anything strange to you? Let me read it again. I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven. Now, that ought to, you ought to hear that and it ought to seem weird to you. This man who has rebelled from God, has turned his back on him, and is running away from him, doesn't look to me like a man who fears the Lord. And there's something here that you, you, you need to notice. We're confronted, as we're confronted elsewhere in Scripture, with the vast difference between your formal confessional theology and your functional theology. Technically, 
This was Jonah's belief system. Technically, he believed in the Lord, the God of heaven. But where rubber meets the road, that belief was not formative of the way he lived life. Don't think you're okay because you have correct theology. Because theology is never an end in itself. Theology is a means to an end, and the end is a radically transformed life. I want to say something I think will will sound radical to many of you, but I think it's important to say. The enemy of your soul will give you your formal theology if he can capture your heart. One of his tools of deceit and deception is to make us think we're okay because our theology is biblical. What good does it do if your technical theology is a theology of grace if you live a self-righteous, defensive life? What good does it do if you technically in your formal theology, believe in the sovereignty of God, if you're a controlling person who demands control over everything in your life, or if you live in anxiety of fear every day at street level. I would ask you this evening, how much is your formal belief system formative of your choices and actions and decisions where the rubber meets the road in your everyday life? Isn't it sad that this confession had no impact on the living of this man? And it's a shame we can read these passages and this doesn't jump off the page at us. There are people here in this room. You are not actually faithfully living what you say you believe. Your wife knows that. Your husband knows that. Your children know that. Your friends know that. It lives at your workplace. It lives in private moments of your life. It lives in anger in the car. It lives all over the place. Everyone in this room has places of theological inconsistency in their lives. Would you, right now, be willing to stop? I'm going to ask us to do this. And bow your head for a moment and pray this prayer. Lord, give me the desire and the ability to live every day what I say I believe. Bow your head and do that. Lord, give me the willingness, the desire, and the ability to actually live in my situations, locations, and relationships what I have confessed I believe. Well, Jonah says to the men in the boat, just throw me into the water. They don't want to do that, but they end up doing that. And here's where you have divine interruption number two. That would seem like it is the end of the story. 
Jonah drowns. The storm ends. And God gets another prophet to go to Nineveh. But here's what it says. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. I love that. I mean, I don't love that the man was eaten. But I love the phrase, the Lord appointed a fish. Isn't that amazing? Now, I would ask you to harness your modern scientific brain and not discount the truth. Let's talk about the reliability of Scripture. If that phrase is not true, how do I know that anything in the Bible is true? Does that make sense to you? Listen, if the history of the Word is not true, the history is the place where the the theology of the Word is lived out for humanity, if that history is not true, nothing is reliable in this book. So here is a picture of the sovereignty of God. If God wants to get this man, he can actually appoint a fish, a fish who will say, yes, sir, sir, oh, Lord Almighty, king of all fish, I will go. I see him now, gobble, gobble, <laughs> to your glory. You know, we, we have this mechanical view of life. I hope this breaks us down. Listen, when you pray, you're praying to the one who rules every single thing that exists. That's why we pray. And he's not like, it's not like the fire station. You know, where they get the, they get the emergency call and they, they run down the pole and whoo. God doesn't have to do that. He's already there. He's already in control. He was there before you were. He's there. He's ruling. There's no situation, no location, no circumstance that isn't under the absolute sovereign rule of the Lord, not just big things. Every little thing is under His sovereign rule. That's why He has the power to do what He wants in order to deliver His plan and purposes in our lives. You can't, you just can't celebrate the grace of God without celebrating his absolute, unchallengeable sovereignty. He's sovereign. Have hope. Well, I think I'm going to say this 12 times as I go through Jonah with you. I love what happens next. Because... As Jonah's in the belly of the whale, you know, I spend a lot of time thinking about what that was like, but I just don't. I mean, did he have little dents in his skin from digestive fluids? I I don't know. Uh, But one thing we know is that in that belly of that fish, the man, the heart of the man began to turn. That's God's grace. That, that was God's purpose. Uh, Jonah gets a spiritual retreat. It just doesn't look like most spiritual retreats. Um, and 
And if you, it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing that by God's love for us, we get to eavesdrop on Jonah's prayer. And, and what you see in this prayer is you see the, how grace turns a man's heart. Look at the beginning. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. What a euphemistic, self-excusing way of talking about what is going on. It sounds like I cried out to the Lord because something happened to me. What actually happened? What was the whole reason for this whole situation? This is not a man who's saying, I rebelled against the Lord, and look what's happened. It's not what he's praying. It's sort of like someone in a time of prayer saying, it was, this week was really a struggle. Oh, I love those. Would you pray? You just know that that's an inadequate description of the week. That means I yelled at my wife, I slugged my children, I quit my job, I ate more than I should ever eat. The week was a struggle. How euphemistic are your prayers? How self-excusing are the ways you pray to the Lord? How willing are you to confess your anger and your impatience and your unforgiveness and your lack of gentleness and that you make war better than you make peace, that you want your own way and you get mad when people are in your way? How specific are your prayers to your Lord? How much, even as you approach the one who is willing to forgive you, are you arguing for your righteousness even in the prayer? I love the old hymn that says, I need no other argument, I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Christ is the only argument you need. Stop arguing for your righteousness. Even in times of prayer, we can say to the Lord, I don't actually need you. Remember the Pharisee and the publican praying in the temple in Christ's uh, parable in Luke. Where the Pharisee basically said to God, I'm a righteous man, I don't really need what you have to offer. By the end of the prayer, Here's what Jonah is saying, verse 8, chapter 2. Those who pay regard, pay regard to vain idols forsake the hope of steadfast love. I don't believe at that point because don't, Jonah makes direct reference to himself in the verse following that Jonah is talking about formal religious idolatry. He's talking about the most significant form of idolatry, idolatry of heart. And he's talking about the base idol. The idol of idols is the idol of self. 
the idol of self makes us susceptible to every other form of idolatry. When I put myself in the middle of my universe, when I make it about me, I have no defense against all the other forms of idolatry that exist around me. We will, we will see later that this man is driven by his own comfort. And he, he does not want to do anything that's uncomfortable to him. In case you hadn't figured out, that's idolatry. Idolatry is when anything rules my heart other than the Lord. And the catalog is endless. When's the last time you've confessed to idolatry? You see, see not just... I said a wrong thing or I did a wrong thing. But, but are you confessing the heart, the idle heart, behind that wrong word, behind that wrong action? Wouldn't it be great if you're a dad to start out the dinner one night with your family by saying, I, I want to say something before, before we eat. I was angry at you guys last night, and I, I said things that I shouldn't have said to you. And, and I did that because there are times when peace and quiet become more important to me than they actually are. And they rule my heart more than, more than the Lord does. And I'm so thankful that God has forgiven me, and I'd love if you forgive me too. Who wouldn't want that man as their father? Is your, is your confession a surface confession or is it heart deep? Is your confession idle deep before the Lord? Where, where Jonah started out in this prayer was not confession at all. It was self-excusing. Where he ends is where God wants us. Because God is not satisfied with episodic moments of obedience. He wants to rule your heart. He will settle for nothing less. Well, interruption three. And the word of the Lord spoke to the fish. You got to love it. Oh, fish. Fish. To the shore. Vomit. In the name of the Lord. It's the only preacher that you'll ever hear say those words. Vomit in the name of the Lord. To the glory of God, dear fish, puke. Don't you love it? I love the grittiness of the word of God. It's just so real. Are you uncomfortable right now? Oh, man. The glorious vomit of grace. It's just, I mean, it's hard to capture words here. Okay, now. Now this gets even more exciting. This is not exciting enough, this glorious picture of God's pursuant grace, even though there's nothing inside of Jonah that would deserve it. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. You've got to love this. Listen, it would have been glorious grace 
If God would have spat this man up on the shore and say, you're done, you'll never be a prophet again, but I preserved your life and I've forgiven you, now go your way. You'd have to applaud that. That's beautiful, undeserved mercy. But that's not what he's doing. He's actually going to use this man. I love the fact that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a story of fresh starts and new beginnings because we need fresh starts and new beginnings. Abraham needed fresh starts and new beginnings because he doubted the faithfulness of God. He had sex with a servant girl and made a mess out of things. David needed fresh starts and and new beginnings because he was a lustful man who committed adultery and murder. Peter needed a fresh start and new beginnings because he he ignored the warning of the Lord and denied his Savior. The Apostle Paul needed fresh starts and new beginnings because he was an enemy of the church of Jesus Christ and the cause of the gospel. Listen, there is no hope for us apart from fresh starts and new beginnings. Don't be paralyzed by regret. Don't live in the past. Don't listen to the enemy that says you're done. You're too bad. You've done too much. You've said too much. You've made too many bad choices. You're too addicted. addicted. You're too weak. It's horrible heresy. There is no such thing as a hopeless human being because the gospel is a message of fresh starts and new beginnings. Rise up. Follow him again. Confess again. He will give you new life. Enough of living in shame. Enough of wallowing in guilt. Jesus bore your shame. Jesus bore your guilt. Jesus bore your penalty. Jesus bore your rejection so that you would never again see the back of God's head. Man, I love how this weird story preaches the gospel. Fresh starts. This this self-centered rebellious, weak, timid man, God says, I'm going to send you. Listen, be careful how you handle the biblical narrative. Be careful how you talk about the saints of old. This may disappoint you, but there aren't any heroes in the Bible. The flawed and needy people There's one hero, the Lord Almighty. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's another thing here that you got to observe. God God calls none of us because we're able. God calls none of us because we're able. God calls us because He's able. Isn't that exciting? You know, if if you're honest, you know you're still a bit of a mess. I am. Recently, I was was working on my next book. We live in what we call a loft, and so our living room area has 16-foot ceilings, and there's a suspended metal stairway that goes up to the loft bedroom. And I'm down there at my computer in a moment 
of high holy glory. I'm doing the work of Jesus. Jesus looking down and saying, look at that man. <laughs> doing my work. And Luella's up uh, at her computer. She works in the art world. She's doing some art consulting. And she walks to the edge of the, the loft, and she, she says, Paul, can I talk to you for a minute? And I say, don't you see what I'm doing? <laughs> I mean, I imagine that there's this ray of light. <laughs> and she walks away, and she comes back, and she says, can I say something else to you? Can I ask you a question? She said very sweetly, she said, what did I do to deserve that reaction you just had? Oh my goodness, I'm crushed at that moment. And, and immediately I realize I'm, I'm the guy that talks about this heart stuff all the time. And there's my heart. How, how quickly impatient I can be. How quickly self-righteous I can be. How quickly ang angry I can be. Oh, brothers and sisters, tonight don't look at me like you don't know what I'm talking about. That's all of us. If you can't relate to this story, you're either comatose or you're not being honest. <laughs> Listen, that's why fresh starts and new beginnings are so precious. That's why it's so precious that the Bible says His mercies are new every morning because every morning I need a fresh start because I blew it the day before. And I'll need fresh starts and new beginnings until I'm on the other side. Now, wowie zowie, stay with me. Look at verse I'm having trouble seeing this. I think it's verse, verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sack, sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Sackcloth was a physical uh, sign of repentance. Hear this. Through this weak, fearful, unable country hick in the city, God turned the hearts of that entire city from the greatest to the least. Isn't that amazing? You see, what God is able to do with your weak, ordinary life when you offer that life to Him is mind-boggling. God regularly does extraordinary things through deeply ordinary people. And it's right here. It's right here. And oh, by the way, the message that Jonah had to proclaim was not a message of condemnation. It was a message of grace. I talked about this last night. Listen, every time God announces judgment, you're not being condemned. You're being warned. You're being rescued. Because if all God wanted to do was judge you, he wouldn't make the announcement. He would just judge you. Jonah didn't get it. He was actually there to preach a message of grace. This is a patient God 
slow to anger, abounding in love. That's why he's warning you, because he's given you a moment to turn. Well, after all of that, where do we find Jonah? Look at chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. You see, now we know why this whole thing happened in the first place. The reason Jonah did what he did was he didn't share God's heart. What was important to the Lord wasn't important to Jonah. Don't think that you're always excited about God's forgiveness and God's grace in the lives of others. There may be people in your life that have hurt you that you don't actually want them to get grace. You want them to get theirs. You want them to feel the pain that you felt, the rejection that you've, you felt. And Jonah says, I knew this would happen because I know you're a God of grace. I knew what you'd do. I knew you'd forgive these people. That makes me so mad. And Jonah ends up outside of the city walls, now pouting. And God interrupts his pout again and causes this plant to grow that gives Jonah shade. And he's in the shade and he's got a little bit of comfort in the midst of his pouting. This is, this is you at the end of a really bad week sitting with a half gallon of ice cream in your lap that you plan to eat the entire thing watching something stupid on television because you're just pouting. Maybe you don't pout with ice cream. Maybe that's just me. <laughs> and you get the most amazing of God's appointments. The Bible says God appoints a worm. Like, how many worms are there? I mean, I imagine God saying, okay, worm, 5,972,422,522, get up. Go eat the roots of that plant. Thus says the Lord. Isn't the Bible wonderful? You just got to laugh at the glory of God. I'm serious. It's just amazing. And that plant dies, and Jonah is angrier than ever before. That's all an illustration to get at the heart of this man. And God says to Jonah, you are angry because you pity the plant. Should I not pity Nineveh with 120,000 people plus cattle? I like the plus cattle part. God cares about the animals, too. You, you see what's happening here? After all the resistance, after all the running, after Jonah has a fit because God is a God of grace, what is God doing? He's still coming to him. He's still working on his heart. You know what I love most about this, this book? I love this so much. It ends with a question. It doesn't actually end. Because the work of God is not an event, it's a process. Jonah, Jonah's heart turned in the middle of the book, but his heart is a mess near the end of the book. And God is still working his heart at the end. 
And the story goes on. This is like one of those movies that you pay $15 to see and it doesn't have an end at the end. My wife hates those. She goes, I can't believe it. But this is a beautiful thing. Because the work of the Redeemer on your heart will not end. Until that work is absolutely complete. You serve a dissatisfied Redeemer who will not relent until every microbe of sin is delivered from every cell of every heart of every one of his children, then he will sit down. It's ongoing. And he comes to you tonight with this question. Is your life an indication that you share my heart? That what is important to me is important to you. Oh, not in formal theology, but at street level. Are there places where you're running from me? Are are there places where my plan is not attractive to you? Are there places where even in times of prayer you are excusing wrong to the one who died to forgive that wrong? Are there places where you're taking control of your life when I have control? Are there places where you doubt my promises even though I control every situation where those promises need to be delivered? What is the condition of your heart? And then the Lord would say to you, you don't need to be afraid to to confess that because I am zealous in grace. I will meet you in grace and I will give you once again a fresh start and new beginnings. Tonight, where do you need a fresh start, and a new beginning offered only by His grace. Let's pray. Lord, how helpful this little story is for us. It, this story is our story. And in this story, we see Jesus. who died because this is what we're like, who died because this is what our world was like, who died to be the delivery system of the grace that we so desperately need. May we not run from you, may we run to you, and may we cry out in humility and confession. We need a fresh start and a new beginning granted from your hands of grace. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless.